Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. Here's what one of you had to say in part. The show is well-informed and centered on the multifaceted lived experiences of Black women and so much more. Thank you. And thank you so much for that review. We are glad you're enjoying the show. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and X at Our Body Politic, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the bio. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. 2023 was a roller coaster of a year, filled with moments of sadness, grief, and anxiety for many of us. We cover a lot of heavy topics on this show because it's our job to understand deeply what's going on in our world and to figure out what we can do about it. But we can only shoulder all that heaviness if we also make sure we're taking care of each other and ourselves. So we're looking back at conversations from this past year to remind ourselves how to do just that. We start with two longtime journalists about how to stay compassionate, considerate, and accountable, even during turbulent times. Veteran writers Marjorie Ingle and New York Times bestselling author Susan McCarthy are co-creators of SorryWatch.com and co-authors of the book Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. They're experts in the art and benefits of a good apology and what to do about bad ones. Welcome, Marjorie. Hi. And welcome, Susan. Hey, great to be here. And I know you both, so if I crack up during the interview, that's just part of the game. So so let me start with you, Susan. So for those who don't know about Sorry Watch, what is it and how did it come to be? Sorry Watch is a website that analyzes apologies. We take them apart and we go, was that good? Was that bad? Was this part good? What was the problem with this one? And just break it down so that people can say, oh, that was actually a really good apology. And you know what? That was a weasel apology. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. And Marjorie, what brought you together with Susan to do Sorry Watch and now the book? The website was Susan's idea. We had both written about apology separately as journalists. Susan wrote a sort of humor piece about the horror that is sorry if apologies. (laughs) And I... If then branch logic gone very bad. Very bad. (laughs) And I was the parent of a somewhat feral toddler. I actually have a picture of you with the feral toddler. Who is Um, now a lovely, lovely grown-ish person. Yes. And uh, she spent all of pre-K in the consequences chair. And I also am Jewish and write for Jewish publications and wrote about apologies a lot every year at the high holidays and accepting them and making them. And so we joined forces. And after a decade of doing sorrywatch.com, wanted to do a book and look more deeply into research. And the topic is so rich. There's so much more to say all the time. I think neither of us is bored. Okay, Susan, let's start diving in here. How important is it to apologize, even if you are stressed out, even if you're not feeling your best? I think it's very important, but I also think sometimes you can take a little time. If you're stressed out and not feeling your best, you might not do the best job. And so it's usually okay to say, I'm going to get back to you on this. I need to apologize to you and I need to think about it. 
Walk us through what the steps for a good apology actually are. So how many steps are there? Six and a half steps. Here are the steps, no matter who you are. Number one, say you're sorry. Use the words, I'm sorry, or I apologize. Not you're regretful. Not that, you know, you would like to apologize. Number two, say what you did. Name it, not the situation or the regrettable incident. Number three, show that you understand why it was bad, how you hurt, why you hurt. Number four, only explain as much as you need to. This is the hard one for me. Do not mm. make excuses. Explanations, not excuses. Number five, say why this will not happen again. What steps are you taking? Number six, if you can make reparations, make reparations. Offer to make up for it. Do an act of repair. And six and a half, which is another hard one, is just listen. Let the other person have their say. And you can start with that with a little kid. You know, the habits that you make will carry you through. And let's just keep it real. And I'm going to go to you, Susan, with more on this because you do write about race in the book. These things can get tricky with the nuances of race and culture. First, Marjorie, how do you deal with nuances of race and culture when it comes to apologies? You know, you need to be sensitive. The whole, I don't care if someone is black, white, or green, and we're all the same under the skin. No, we're not. We come from different places with different experiences and different collective experiences in this country. And that needs to be reflected in apologies. Being perceived as, quote, unapologetic or being perceived as angry have very different impacts if you are particularly a Black woman in America. And let's run with gender, Susan. You know, as a smart woman, you are probably never patronized, never taken for granted, never talked down to. (laughs) But if you were in some horrible world, which certainly doesn't exist now, how would you perceive the gender field of uh, apologies? That's a great minefield because women are told that they apologize too much, and we certainly see women who are like... I'm sorry if this has been mentioned. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to tell you something you actually need to know. And that is not something women need to apologize for. On the other hand, we did a lot of research. Uh, Marjorie did especially did a lot of research on this. And some of our conclusion is that men need might need to apologize more rather than mm. women apologizing less. It's one thing to apologize for, for what you do, but you should never have to apologize for who you are. Let's get into a specific. So say a person does apologize, but that apology misses the mark. I am specifically thinking of the story of Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter being racially profiled at the bank and not getting the apology they deserved. Susan, for those who don't know the story, could you share what happened? Yeah. Mr. Johnson took his granddaughter to the bank. He was being like a grandfather that's showing his granddaughter around to open an account in her own name. They are members of a Canadian Indian nation. They use their uh, identity cards. And he had banked at this bank for a long time. He did not anticipate any problem. And the person he talked to, the loan officer, took the ID away and came back and said, just a minute. And next thing you know, they were being arrested. They were being handcuffed. They were taken out on the sidewalk in handcuffs. Mr. Johnson and his granddaughter, people were walking by and looking. And his granddaughter, who was 12. Mm -hmm. And the bank officer said, there's a fraud in progress. This kid is 17 and she's South Asian and do something about it. And then the police made the calls that the bank officer should have made. 
and determined that this was totally legit. She was using the tribal card she was supposed to use. The money was from a tribal settlement. Everything was on the up and up. They were taken to a police station, and the police apologized to them. But then the bank took ages and ages to come up with really bad apologies and saying, like, you know, it was totally suspicious. And we took them out on the sidewalk to protect their privacy, which is obvious nonsense. Yeah. So, Marjorie, regardless of the reason... What does one do if one doesn't get the apology they deserve? And, of course, there's, I'm sure, a decision tree of options. So what are some of the options? Yeah. If the person is never going to give you the apology you deserve, if you know that they're not capable of it, if they're giving you the gaslighting, sorry, you're a snowflake kind of bullpucky apologies, do not waste your valuable emotional energy on this person. You're never going to get what you want. If, however, you think that this person is either educable, someone you need in your life, or someone you want in your life despite their flaws, you are completely within your rights to ask for a better apology. You can just say, I'm glad you want to make things right, but here's why what you said didn't satisfy me, and here's what I need you to think about. And then come back to me if you want to talk about it later. And Marjorie, going back into these race, religion, waters, people have apologized from official governments and organizations for the Holocaust, thinking of Germany and France. Doesn't mean that they were the best or that all reparations were made, just saying there were apologies. There have been apologies for internment of Japanese Americans. There's never been a federal apology for slavery in the same way. And in part, people use the idea of legal action as, oh, well, we can't apologize because then maybe we'd have to you know, give people the U.S. capital that enslaved people build. And it's like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. So what, what, how does, you know, legal risk get factored into the world of apologies, public apologies? I think this is about a fundamental way that people in power in America want to see themselves and see America. They can see Japanese internment as a brief window in time of badness. Slavery is baked in to America. And to apologize for that is too fundamentally destabilizing to the just world hypothesis, which is the way a lot of people in positions of power want to see the world as a fair and just place. It causes huge cognitive dissonance, which is a very uncomfortable feeling. We can talk maybe not about politicians, but about specific institutions like Georgetown, uh, Mm -hmm. which the student body voted that they wanted to make reparations for the fact that enslaved Americans built that university. And were sold to finance it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of Susan's good examples in the book is when Antonin Scalia was like, I'm not responsible for slavery. My family got here after that was already long over. And like, dude, you went to Georgetown, Mm -hmm. you know, like we all are culpable. So, Susan, do you address this in the book, the question of laws and official institutions? Yeah, we do. We actually compared the apologies for Japanese incarceration in Canada and the United States because Mm. the experiences in Canada and the United States were not identical, but they were very much parallel. 
And in each case, you had leaders fighting not to apologize and saying, if I apologize to them, I'll have to apologize to everybody. Pierre Trudeau was like, I wasn't prime minister when that happened. And Ronald Reagan was like, I didn't do that. But eventually, in both countries, people asking for reparations did prevail. They got apologies. They got reparations. They got institutions to be built to help correct things that had happened in the past. On a smaller scale, I think of this guy who was wrongly imprisoned, wrongly convicted, spent years in prison because of police malfeasance. And when he was finally released, he said, and I'm estimating these numbers, he said, he sued and he said, I want $18,000. I will take $15,000 with a private apology to me and my family, or I'll take $13,000 for a public apology. He didn't get the public apology, so the county of L.A. paid him a couple million dollars not to have to apologize. So, Marjorie and Susan, now is time for the listener bonus round. One listener said that the worst apology they ever experienced was in the form of an emo rap song released on SoundCloud. In contrast, another (laughs) said that their worst apology was one that was never given. We also received a call from listener Patty. Here she's sharing one of the best apologies she's ever received. My teenage son offered me the perfect apology after a heated argument and a couple of hours of cooling off. So he sought me out and said, Mom, can we talk? I'm sorry about what I said. I was out of line and I promise not to talk to you that way again because I don't ever want to hurt your feelings. One, he asked for my permission, for my attention. Two, he owned his actions. Three, he acknowledged my feelings. And four, he didn't make any, include any excuses or blame for my part in altercation. So, Marjorie, with your two strong-willed adult children, have you gotten some good apologies? Yes. My kids have given me really good apologies. They've also given me really, really bad apologies. It's something (laughs) that we work on throughout life. And I think that we just have to keep remembering that our brains are not wired to make this easy. And that's why we say apologies are a brave act. Good apologies are a brave act. And I'm so impressed with that caller's kid. He's a teenager. Their their brains are not finished baking. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is really a credit to her parenting that she raised a kid who knows that's important and who did that. All right, Susan, going to you, we had uh, several of our listeners vote on whether or not apologies were good or bad. So 100% said, sorry, if you took my suggestion the wrong way, was bad. 97% said, I'm sorry, it was just a joke, was bad. 99% also agreed, sorry, I didn't realize you were so sensitive, was bad. 85% said, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, I'll do better, was good. Um, It may be the I'll do better part. And it was fun getting our listeners to weigh in on these sample apologies. So, you know, Susan, now that we talked through a few of these, how do you start to respond to an apology? I recently made an apology (laughs) to a business contact who I think owes me a bigger apology, but I didn't want to do that. I'm like, I'm going to keep my side of the street clean. This business contact did not apologize to me nor acknowledge my apology. (gasps) But I am not shocked. I'm 0% shocked, and I'm very proud that I made my apology. So, Susan, what about acknowledging apologies? Acknowledging apologies is the right thing to do, and yet a lot of us don't know how to do it. Maybe we've never seen it done, and it's so simple to say, thank you, I accept your apology, to say, that was really hard for you, I really appreciate getting that apology. 
you can say to someone, you know, do you accept my apology? We don't mm. encourage people to ask for forgiveness, but you can say, is that an apology you can accept? Is there something mm. I'm missing? Um, also, how much, how much to your credit, Farai, that like, even though you knew the other person owed you more, you did not bring it up because no, that's so hard that's to not, do. That's not on, to, on me. That's on them. And, yep. And whenever, yeah. like, I workshop my apologies with Susan when I have to make them because it's so hard for me to do that sort of step four about not making excuses because that's, yes. I think, where you put that's exactly in what I was the, thinking. The, and that's where you would put in, do you have anything to say to me? <laughs> and, like, you know, you can't. And it's really hard. So, you know. Yay Thank you. It was it was very much as a result of sorry, sorry, sorry that I decided to make an apology I knew probably would not be reciprocated and has not so far. And I am not holding my breath. <laughs> <laughs> but it made you feel good, right? It, did. it made you it feel did. Like, I was like I was like, I'm a grown up. I'm a better person. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to just say briefly some of the words that you showed your audience, you know, besides the sorry if, sorry but, sorry you, which are all terrible. Whenever you hear the word obviously or Ooh, regrettable yes. or already, a lot of times people say I've already apologized or we've already moved on. Um, <laughs> you know, anytime somebody wants to talk about if you have hippie friends like I do, if they start talking about positivity or their own journey or context, all of that. No, bad, <laughs> uh, unfortunate, you know, those are not words that take ownership. And that's what you're looking for in a good apology. I love it so much. And okay, Susan, unfortunately, sometimes you both know that you were in the wrong, which is this, you know, case that I was talking about. What are some tips for apologizing if you think it's like a standoff with both of you with your rhetorical guns pointed at each other? Well, you can't apologize for other people. You apologize for your part. And separate conversations is often the key. Like, this is the conversation in which I apologize to you for my part in this. And you keep that separate from the part that you may not get where they apologize to you for their part in it. Yeah, this was great advice from both of you on that reciprocal apology thing. So let's talk about something else, Burning Man. We're all very familiar with Burning Man, and Burning Man is a place where a lot of things go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of bad behavior. So if I believe that I'm owed an apology at Burning Man, which I will never get, but also it's a place where I shouldn't look for that. <laughs> Sometimes, Marjorie, are there places where you just, you like, no matter what, you just can't expect it and shouldn't even ask for it. And it's not even something that people should apologize for. <laughs> uh, context is everything. There's always <laughs> context. Wait. Um, yes. Oh, this is a great way to, yes, we should definitely talk about Camp Ply Apology. Uh, Susan, you've had more interactions with them. And Ply is a them. nickname for Burning Man. Yeah. Yeah. So at Burning Man, there's a camp. It's been there for some years now where they help people apologize and people True. come and they say, I maybe got busy on just the other side of a tent wall and I want to apologize to my campmate. Or, yeah, I put my wet backpack on top of the art car and I did some damage. I really need to apologize. How do I do it? Sorry, I borrowed your bike without asking. And also, I wasn't wearing pants at the time. Yeah, and I, and I left it at, you know, a sound installation in the far desert. And I don't remember where it is. Never mind. We're getting too specific now. Yeah. 
Well, let's just say that someone related to me borrowed a bike and uh, put it in the middle of camp where they didn't think it would be stolen, and it was stolen. <gasps> and I eventually got an apology for that. But that required some explanation because they thought it was just any bike, and they hadn't noticed that I had customized it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Camp Play Apology will help you workshop your apology. If you think the person doesn't want to hear from you, they will send a little emissary for you. You can get mm-hmm. flower. You know, there's no commerce, but they will bring a flower, you know, fake flower because you don't want to have yeah, petals desert. in the Desert's desert. not so good. No. They will um, sing a song? They have, they'll, oh, yeah, I love it. They have cards that you can fill out. And they'll also tell you when not to apologize, which mm. I think is really good because that's always a question is you have to think sometimes you want to unburden yourself and sometimes you when you really think about it you know that the other person does not want to hear from you and in that case it's about you it's not about them and a good apology should always be about the other person and that's also why we say you don't get to ask for forgiveness when you're giving the apology because asking for forgiveness is like asking for a gift and it's rude to ask for a gift Well, I could go on with both of you all day, but now that I have laughed my insides raw, I think I'm just going to have to stop there. And I am not sorry for talking to both of you. Thank you. I'm not sorry a bit either. Oh, we love you for I. We could not be less sorry for being here. That was Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy, the co-creators of SorryWatch.com and co-authors of the book, Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. This past summer, we explored the roots of Juneteenth, the holiday celebrating the day enslaved people were finally freed in Texas on June 19, 1865. The day became a federal holiday in 2021, and Juneteenth's expansion is one indication of the ways Black memory and the commemoration of Black freedom is championed. But some critics have said that that expansion has diluted the celebration's original message. So I wanted to explore how we can take care of the collective memories of Black Americans without commercializing the summer tradition. I sat down with Andrea Roberts, Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at the University of Virginia School of Architecture. She's also the founder of the Texas Freedom Colonies Project and a sixth-generation Texan. I started by asking Andrea about the history behind the day we now know as Juneteenth. So what we're celebrating is the arrival of General Gordon Granger reading something called Order Number 3, which informed African-Americans present about the end of enslavement, but more accurately, the Emancipation Proclamation. It's important to actually read the order Because what it essentially says is that you now have the right to negotiate your labor and you're asked to remain where you are and remain orderly, right? But there's nothing about the rest of the rights that you would associate with actually being a citizen of the United States, like Mm. voting or buying land or there's nothing that says you are afforded all the rights and responsibilities and privileges of citizenship. That's what didn't happen. Yeah, that was obviously deliberately crafted language around the labor of African-Americans being valuable to the state of Texas and the United States. Absolutely. So looking at history now through that lens, how do you think that trickled into what was the beginning of freedom for Texans who were being liberated more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation? What we saw directly after the announcement 
was first concurrent announcements happening in different states that were much later also in getting the news. But what we see is constant challenges to the rights over our bodies as African-Americans and our labor. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that the 13th Amendment, which wasn't ratified in Texas until 1870, still stipulates that you can be incarcerated. That's the one exception around being held in enslavement, which kind of concedes that when we talk about the prison industrial complex, when we talk about mass incarceration, we are looking at a continuation of enslavement. Yeah. And so let's get a little more personal with you. You are a sixth generation Black Texan, and we are going to go back to the history, of course. Sure. But the history of the West has often been whitewashed. What are your specific roots in Texas? Well, the way that I talk about my roots in Texas is very much before I was in my 30s and after my 30s. Mm. Before my 30s, I had a consciousness of very much being a Texan, of going and enjoying Juneteenth at the Miller Outdoor Theater in Houston. I grew up in the Houston metro area. I was born in Sugar Land. And my memories and understanding of what it meant to be a Texan were just about, this is where I go to see grandma. She happens to live in this community. And I don't know quite why it seems to be off the grid in certain ways. She has a chicken farm and it's the middle of the city. But once I begin to lose family members, I began to dive into my own family story. And that took me to my family cemetery in a community called Fifth Street. And once I delved into and began to understand who exactly was buried there, I wanted to know the name of the cemetery. I learned it was called the Farmers Improvement Society Cemetery. And that led me down a road of learning about rural mutual aid, self-insurance. And that led me into trying to understand the communities that fostered that. And those communities were founded directly after emancipation. Mm. So there was this whole kind of hidden infrastructure that I became aware of and became pretty obsessed with learning more about. And were these the freedom colonies? Exactly. Can you explain it to me? Sure. So Freedom colonies are Black settlements, they're freedmen settlements, all the same thing. But what's significant about these founded in Texas between 1865 and 1930 is that they were founded really around adverse possession of land, what we also call squatting. There was Mm -hmm. no grand 40 acres and a mule. So these are places mostly in flood-prone areas or land that African-Americans learned to make use of, and they created them and named them around institutions such as the church, Mm -hmm. uh, the schools, a local landscape feature, or around the leader who may have led them to this area to found the community. And so it's those stories about the founding of these places, the names, and how people define these places around these names that we don't see on maps that have led me to commit my life to telling the stories of freedom colonies as being intentional Black communities where African-Americans are trying to territorialize freedom in a way that they can't in other ways. 
And you founded the Texas Freedom Colonies Project in 2014. So what does that work entail? Yeah, back in 2014, it was really me developing relationships and spending time in deep East Texas in a place called Shankleville Community. And so the Texas Freedom Colonies Project really emerges out of the relationships I built with folks in Shankleville, as well as the surrounding freedom colonies in that region. And after Mm -hmm. conducting oral history interviews, documenting the rituals and the commemorative celebrations that brought the diaspora of descendants from all over back to those places, I began really interested in learning how they were leveraging oral tradition to mobilize the diaspora to return and then to actually achieve planning and preservation goals. And so as an urban planner, what I've really committed to is really bridge the world of storytelling and memory and commemoration and bridge that to preservation and planning, which is very much about structures and land use and what happens to communities and decision-making in communities. And that's really the work of the Freedom Colleagues Project is the raising awareness, the bridging, the grassroots information and practice with Mm -hmm. the planning and preservation work that happens in a field that's predominantly white and not always aware or understanding of what makes these places significant or even how to identify them. And I will say that the URL is the Texas Freedom Colonies Project.com and folks can find it there. So let me just end on a note of joy and celebration, which is that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. But let's talk about how your family celebrates Juneteenth. What do you remember from childhood and, and how do you celebrate now? Well, it's funny. I wouldn't say we boycotted the 4th of July, right? Any day off is a good day. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it was our 4th of July. It was what we call red soda water. <laughs> it was the going to, as I mentioned before, Miller Outdoor Theater, where you would go see blues artists. You'd see bikers, African-American mm-hmm, bike mm-hmm. clubs. You would see people riding their horses. But it's really a day where we're showing ourselves to ourselves. Yes. And we're somewhat free of the white gaze in that there's nothing about this that is referencing or performing for or projecting something for white folks. It's about owning oneself, one's own labor, one's own time, and leaning into the restful aspects of that, in the joyous aspects of that. That was Andrea Roberts, Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at the University of Virginia's School of Architecture and founder of the Texas Freedom Colonies Project. Hello and welcome. Thank you for being here today. And most importantly... Welcome back to Our Body Politic, I'm Farai Chidea. We're sharing some of our best conversations from this past year on caring for our loved ones and communities. And now it's time to focus on taking care of ourselves. Even when we know how beneficial mindfulness is, it can still be hard to keep a consistent personal practice. And with our busy lives, it can be even harder to get started. So we're looking back at my conversation with people making music that invites us to take a seat, breathe, and meditate. 
often leaked. Geminelle is a singer, songwriter, producer, and healer. She's also the creator of Mantra Loops, a project that combines affirmation, music, and healing. And Jasmine Lamb is a multi-hyphenate creative, mindfulness meditation instructor, and founder of What We Share. I started by asking the duo about teaming up for their collaborative album, Mindfulness in Challenging Times. Let's listen to the title track. All you have to do is acknowledge your own indisputable existence. All you have to do is believe that basic goodness is who you are. Start there. I invite you to notice the edges of your mind where your thoughts stop. Jasmine, your words guide us on this album. How did you get started on mindfulness, your own personal practice, and also as someone who's able to lead others? Well, I started meditating, I would say, maybe about six, seven years ago. You know, prior to my journey in L.A., I was living in New York and I was working in the tech space and 70 hour weeks and was struggling a lot with my mental health and just looking for, as I call them, like tools to help facilitate clarity. You know, I was having a lot of brain fog and just not feeling like myself. And so I actually started meditating to Deepak Chopra's and Oprah's 21 day mindfulness meditation. Before mm-hmm. it is what it is now, they have a lot of variations, but um, I started doing guided meditations. And then I realized that I was still feeling maybe distracted even in in that process. I started then working at a a yoga tech company, which is then how I was introduced to my mindfulness meditation teacher, who then taught me this specific practice of mindfulness meditation and its lineage. He really guided me in getting my certification. And so now I work with him to help other teachers get certified. And Geminel, how did you two connect? You know, let me start with that first. Jasmine and I connected very randomly at an event in New York City. And I think after we met Jasmine, we ended up hanging out with her for the rest of the evening, exchanged information. (laughs) And then um, she has really supported the growth of my husband's company, Tunnel Vision Creative Agency. She's been a, a pillar of press and marketing for my own career. And so when Jasmine came to me with the project in mind for mindfulness in challenging times, I knew that I wanted to support her in any way that I could. And how did you decide what to bring to the table in terms of putting music with Jasmine's words, Geminelle? Well, it was really a collaboration between the two of us. When Jasmine mentioned that she wanted to do a meditation album, I asked her if she wanted music for it. And then she and I worked together to kind of develop the sound that she really wanted to create around this project and like what emotions she wanted to evoke from the audience. And we kind of went back and forth working virtually and figuring out like, okay, is this kind of the vibe that you want or is this the vibe? And then just curating that playlist together. What should we be learning now as Black or BIPOC people about how to bring this into our lives, meaning meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, I think that this particular style of meditation is really powerful. I think especially for Black people, brown people, BIPOC people, it's a way to actually apply the practice in your everyday life. That's really the best way to put it. And I know that through my own challenges, just navigating life, 
society, work, career, and all the things that come with it as a Black woman. And why I'm so passionate about this practice is it's about actually coming into your body. It's about coming into the present moment and being more awake. And then it's also about taking the practice with you after you are done meditating. That's a huge part, right? It's called post-meditation practice. And so when I'm navigating difficult conversations or just out in the world navigating challenges, I am able to see how I can be more responsive and less reactive because I'm practicing noticing my thoughts while I'm sitting. And so it's a very transient practice. It's a very applicable practice to real life challenges and hardships. So Geminelle, as a creator, how does mindfulness work with your creativity? I think mindfulness works with my creativity and me not overthinking, you know, like really giving myself an opportunity to be present with the creative energy that's surrounding me and allow like intuition to move through that space and not necessarily try to create a box around it. Because the moment I start thinking about like, oh, how are people going to receive this? Or does this sound okay? Does this feel okay? That's the moment that I lose that creative flow. So really just being present with the creativity and the creative energy that's around and allowing myself to be playful and allow myself to make mistakes and just continue to work through those things, I think is really how mindfulness kind of plays a role in my creativity. And Jasmine, as a creator and entrepreneur, what about you? Mindfulness for me, when I'm creating, it helps bring me into my body, you know, which I think is often maybe more associated with yoga. But mindfulness for me really brings me into my body and that helps me express myself and have a lot of clarity and focus because I think that's also something that's called a focused awareness. So it's like, you know, sort of being aware of what's happening, but also feeling like that sharpness about what's actually in front of me. I think that that helps me tap into my creativity, especially on projects. And as we wrap up, these have definitely been challenging times, you know, pandemic, racial reckonings, all sorts of issues with gender, reproductive justice, etc. When you hear about, as inevitably happens, some piece of bad news or challenging news about the world, where does your practice take you? I'll go to you first, Jasmine, and then Geminelle. <laughs> My first thought would be, you know, right where you are. That's mm. the best place right in the thick of it, right in the middle of, you know, the news hits your timeline and you feel like you can't breathe, you can't catch your breath, right? Take your seat. Yeah. Gemino? Mm. To my breath, I would say that's usually the first thing. And then, you know, I start to ask myself if there's anything within my control that I can do to support this challenge. And if it's not, then I work on continuing to breathe through to release and letting go and just acknowledging that the more present I am with my own purpose is like the more capacity I have to make an impact. Are you considering doing a collaboration again in the future, the two of you? I'm sure we'll figure out something that we're going to collaborate on. <laughs> yeah, there's a strong likelihood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Jasmine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. That was Jasmine Lamb, mindfulness meditation teacher and founder of What We Share. And Geminelle, I want to wrap up by talking more about your musical career. So what were your early musical influences and how old were you when you started singing? 
Oh man, I've been singing since I was a little girl. And I think my brother was a big part of my musical inspiration. He would always like leave me burned CDs in the morning just yeah. to kind of like inspire me <laughs> to write good music off the top of my head. Like the ones that resonate the most with me are probably Erica Badu, Mama's Gun to this day, still one of my favorite albums. He had given me Guapale's first album, lots of outcasts, yeah. obviously Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. They were big in the 90s. And then it was my, I had a vocal coach when I was 13, put a pen and a paper in my hand and say, you should write your own music. Wow. And at the time I was writing short stories and things like that in school. And there was something I really enjoyed was creative writing. And so when I first realized, oh, like I can write my own music, like I wrote a song that same day. So when did you start performing with groups? Around the same time, around 12, 13, I had graduated from, or I like had my promotion from the sixth grade and I sang the national anthem. There was a manager, a music manager who was there, who was inspired by my voice. And I ended up singing with three other young women in a group called Miss, M-I-S-S. And it was a little short-lived, but it was definitely a great experience. Got a chance to understand the music industry a little more through mm -hmm. management and through like artists and repertoire and what that process looked like and get to be in front of major labels and kind of learn about like what their process is and receiving artists. And I think I was with them for about nine months to a year. So let's turn to your work on mantra loops. When did you first learn what mantras were and how did it inspire you? Yeah. Around the time that I was writing Mantra Loops, I was kind of just searching for something to help me redirect the way that I think. I realized I had a lot of negative self-speak, just like from my own experiences, my own environment, from listening to other people and the way that they talk to themselves, the way they talk to me. And I, I realized that it wasn't healthy for me, especially because my career was advancing. At the time, I was reading a book called Abundance Now by Lisa Nichols. And Lisa Nichols talked a lot about affirmation and mantras. The mantra that stood out to me was, I joyfully submit to the will of my calling. Mm. And I remember at the time that was a really hard thing for me to repeat to myself. But over time, as I practiced it, I realized that there was something about being able to submit to the present moment, being able to submit to the opportunities that were coming my way and to be joyful about them in the same breath, it started to kind of like actually happen for me. And so I started kind of making up my own mantras of like what I felt like I needed. And the main one that I had thought of was my success is inevitable. That was the first one. Yeah, I realized I was always kind of thinking about like when I make it to this level or when I get here, that's when I'll be successful and wasn't able to really celebrate like the present day success that I was having. I would get into these spaces with amazing artists that I wanted to collaborate with. And I was just thinking like, well, I'm not really where I want to be yet to be in this room, not realizing I was in the room, you know? And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so I started saying before, like when I would get nervous in these spaces, my success is inevitable. And it would let me relax and like kind of just be at ease. And once I was myself, the connections were genuine and the relationships grew. And that mantra really worked for me to be able to just like realize my power in a space yeah. and just let myself be present. This album, Mantra Loops Volume 1, came out in 2019, seven tracks. Let's listen to a little bit more of it. The opening track of the album, I Invite Ease and Joy. I invite 
I love all the songs on this album, but that's one that definitely really hits home for me because I need to invite ease and joy. I'm like a type A workaholic. What does that song mean to you? Yeah, I, I feel you and I resonate. I'm definitely a workaholic in many, many mm-hmm. ways. But, you know, for the project and for my life, I just realized that, like, I was making things harder on myself because I wasn't really open to receiving ease and joy. I wasn't open to receiving help or support. I wasn't really, like, ever satisfied with where things were in life. When I was writing Mantra Loops, I wanted to kind of open up the project with something like a message to myself and I invite ease and joy was the message that came and when I hear it I think about all the things I'm inviting ease and joy into I'm inviting ease and joy into my health into my finances into my relationships even when I perform it sometimes like I'll stop in the middle of the performance and I'll just have people shout out what they want to invite ease and joy into you hear like sometimes I don't even think about it you know what I mean it's like oh I invite ease and joy into my nutrition or they say they invite ease and joy into their kids you know (laughs) like yeah into parenting (laughs) um and so it's it's really cool to kind of unpack with people what they're hoping to invite ease and joy into and I think it's such a powerful statement and wearing it now, you know, and it's a reminder to me just to like every day, just invite ease and joy into every single moment. Tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your family's heritage, how you pull that up into your work and what you hope to pass on to your child. Oh, that's a great question. I could start with growing up multi-ethnic. My mother is Native Hawaiian. My father is African-American. I feel like I had the privilege of experiencing both sides of these cultures. Like we spent time in Hawaii a lot growing up. So I got to learn the indigenous practices of Hawaiians, you know, the entire language, the experiences, how we speak to our ancestors. I had the opportunity to go to Africa for the first time this past year. Oh, wow. I was in Rwanda, Kigali, Rwanda, just connecting with African people for the first time made me realize how African we are and even how much of Hawaiian culture comes from African culture. And so seeing how it's all connected just really made me feel very whole and realizing all of the overlap that's kind of in that space. Well, let's listen to a little bit of the song I Am Proud, which is part of the forthcoming release Mantra Loops Volume 2. So you have your next album coming out, Mantra Loops, Volume 2, Embodied. What does it mean to you to be embodied? Mm. I think particularly around this project, it was really important to me that the mantras were something that could live in your body. And so this project is very dance-centric. It's unlike anything I've ever put out before. So it's lots of um, piano, Afrobeat, house music, just oh, big wow. vibes. Yeah, like lots of Love. lots of movement. And um, these aren't even messages that I've currently embodied myself. Some of them are. Some of them I definitely feel deeply resonant with. But others I'm like, this is the work that I'm doing. The work to know in every moment that I am more than enough when I show up to feel like I am luminous even in the dark times. The energy that I feel in this project is something that I definitely feel is 
a representation of who I authentically am in this season of life. I wanted the music to feel like that. The freedom is the fun. It's liberation at its finest. And I cannot wait to share it with the people. Well, that's <laughs> exciting. Geminelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was singer-songwriter and producer Geminelle. Her album Mantra Loops Volume 2 Embodied drops December 22nd. You can find out more about her work at mantraloops.com. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter where we share additional insights and resources for the OBP community. Check us out on Instagram at Our Body Politic and click the link in our bio. You can also find our polling at living-data.com. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm host and executive producer for Rai Chidea. Nina Spensley and Shanta Covington are also executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Andrea Aswahe, Anne Maria Wad, Natina Bean, Morgan Givens, Emily Ho, and Monica Morales Garcia are our producers. Kelsey Kudak and Monica Morales Garcia are our fact checkers. Our associate producer is David Escobar. Our technical director is Mike Garth with engineering help from Emma Shannon of Clean Cuts. This program is produced with support from the Cerdna Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. Mm-hmm.